By a show of hands, how many of you have seen the Titanic? The movie. I, maybe the real thing. If you've seen the real thing, I want, we need to chat after because you've got a story to tell. <laughs> so I haven't actually seen the movie, but I know how it ends. Anybody else know how the movie ends? Hopefully. Hopefully you guys all know how it ends. The movie's based on a real story about how the Titanic sank. Hopefully that's not a spoiler for you. The Titanic was 900 feet long and 100 feet wide. If you don't know anything a lot about boats, that sounds like it's pretty large. But that's very small compared to modern cruise ships. At that time, though, that was state of the art. I mean, this was, this was a very large ship. It was the most luxurious ship around at that time. It had the capacity to carry 3,500 passengers. On its maiden voyage, it was only carrying uh, just over 2,200 passengers. And the builders of the ship, they were very proud of this ship. And they claimed that it was unsinkable, that this could never fail. Nothing bad could happen to this ship. It's too large. It's too grand. It is too strong. There's even a quote attributed to the captain where he said, God himself could not sink this ship. And everybody's like, oh, you jinxed it, man. (laughs) This incredible work of human achievement set sail on April 10th. And disaster arrived four days later when the ship struck an iceberg, causing it to sink. And it took with it 1,500 of its passengers. Those who survived the sinking of the Titanic, they, they described the ocean that night as unusually calm. They said that there was no waves on the water, that it was like a sea of glass as they glided through it. They didn't have a care in the world. They had confidence in this ship. Not even God himself could sink this ship. And then it sank. This source of great pride gave way to incredible disaster. Now, I'm not saying that the Titanic sinking was God's judgment. It could have been. We have no way of knowing whether that is the case or not. But the Titanic does highlight the foolishness of human pride. Human pride in ourselves, in our accomplishments, in anything that we do is inevitably going to lead to disaster. And that's what we're going to see today. King Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man. Over the last two chapters in Daniel, God has graciously demonstrated to the king that God is wiser than the king, than the king's gods and the king's wise men, and he's proven himself to be more powerful than the king and the king's gods. But despite this gracious demonstration, the king has refused to humble himself. He's continued to glorify himself rather than the God who has given him his kingdom. In chapter four, the the, the infinite wisdom and power of God that we saw on display in chapters two and three, they come together to finally humble King Nebuchadnezzar. But because the king's pride was so great, his humbling and his humiliation are equally great as well. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 18. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. 
<clears throat> you can follow along on the screen or open up your Bibles and read along with me. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all the beasts of the field, or in, the, in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts, of, beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all of the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. <clears throat> the events of, <clears throat> of this chapter likely take place toward the end of the king's reign. Probably around 30 years, give or take a few, after the events of chapter 3. So Daniel's no longer a young boy here. He, he is a man probably around the age of 50. And this chapter is one of the most unique in, in all of Scripture because this is the only chapter of the entire Bible that is written entirely by, by an antagonist or an enemy of God's people. Although I will say by the time this was written, I do think that this pagan king had converted and began following the Lord. But this whole chapter is written by or from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in this chapter, the king is testifying to, what, to the way that God has worked in his life and how God humbled this king. <clears throat> 
In these first three verses, the king is addressing his words to every people, every nation, and every language. The king is writing to all of his subjects, and he wants them to know that the God of Judah, Daniel's God, he wants them to know how he has worked in his life. It says it seemed good to the king to show the signs and the wonders of God. In other words, the king is delighted. That's the the same uh, sense, or that's the sense being carried from it seemed good to me. The king is saying, I am delighted to tell you about the works of the most high God. This king knows he will not live forever, but God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The king's reign will come to an end soon, but the God who performs signs and wonders will never cease to reign over the kingdoms of man. And Nebuchadnezzar has finally come to realize this, to realize that his Babylonian gods are not sovereign, that he himself is not sovereign. He's come to realize that there is one sole sovereign, and that is God alone. He reigns with power and with wisdom for all of eternity. These first three verses, they're actually written before the events that follow, before what we read about in verses 4 through 33. So verses 4 through 33, they're showing us the events that led to the king genuinely worshiping and following the Lord. In verse 4, we find the king at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. So he's doing exactly what you would expect a king to do. He's living the good life. He's living it up, enjoying the luxuries that come with being king. He's got his feet kicked up. He's watching TV, eating good food. I don't know what you do at that point as a king, but he's doing all of the good and luxurious things. And at this point in his life, there was no major threats to his kingdom. His enemies had been conquered and and vanquished. Egypt was not a threat to him. This was a, a, a pretty peaceful moment in his life. He's very content, but that changes in a brief moment. Because as he's relaxing in bed, he has a dream that leaves him terrified. And he immediately calls for his wise men. And this is a little ironic, because if you think back to chapter 2, the king had a dream and needed somebody to interpret. And he called his wise men. And his wise men kept telling the king, king, if you would just tell us what your dream was, we could interpret it for you, no problem. But now in chapter 4, the king says, okay, wise men, here's your chance. This is what I dreamed. And they're left speechless. They have no idea what the dream meant, and they are unable to interpret Human wisdom has failed yet again. But in the wake of that failure, the king is unfazed because he has total confidence in his servant, Daniel. Daniel has proven capable to reveal mysteries, to interpret the dreams of the king. The first portion of this dream, it involves this this vision of a great tree. And this tree was in the middle of the earth. Its height was great, and it grew and grew and grew and became very strong. Eventually, it even reached to the heavens. And heavens here is not heaven where where Jesus is. It's heaven speaking about the sky. So this tree is grown all the way up. You can see across the face of the earth. It, It seems as if it's piercing the clouds and going all the way up into space. There's no limit for this tree. It will keep growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So big, it became a home for everything, for all of the animals of the earth, all of the people, all of the beasts, everything found shelter in this tree. 
And it was healthy, it was fruitful, it, it brought prosperity to the world. It had enough food to feed all of the people of the earth. So this tree is pictured as, as really the centerpiece of the entire world, of humanity, of, of sustaining all human and animal life. <clears throat> then the scene of the vision shifts, and a holy watcher descends from the heaven. And watcher means messenger. So what we have here is an angel. An angel descends from heaven with a decree from heaven. And he proclaims loudly that this incredible tree that is a blessing to so many people is going to be chopped down and stripped completely bare. The animals and the things that find shelter in it will be forced to flee. But the angel also commands that the stump be left intact. He says, bind it with a, with a band of iron and bronze fastened around it and leave it in the tender grass of the field. I want you to think back to chapter two again. Remember, uh, the king had the giant uh, statue in his dream. What happened when the stone crushed into the feet of the statue? Yeah, completely obliterated that statue. It turned to dust. It was completely non-existent after that point. We're seeing something different here. This tree is cut down, but it is not totally destroyed. It is not uprooted and burned. It is cut down, laid low, but it remains in the ground, in a sense, offering hope that this tree might grow again one day. This proclamation against the tree, it says, is given by the angel so that all the living would know that the Most High, God himself, is the true ruler of every kingdom. And the fate that befalls the tree, that this fate will befall the tree, so that the world would see that there is one true sovereign, one king reigning over all. And that is God himself. He is the sole sovereign who sets up and lays low human kings. Number one, God is the true sovereign over heaven and earth. God is the true sovereign over heaven and earth. He gives the kingdom to whomever he wills. And sometimes it says he sets over the lowliest of men. And some of you might have questions like if God has the ability to, to choose who will reign and who will not reign, why is he picking at times the lowliest of men, the worst that mankind has to offer? And I don't think we can answer that definitively. We aren't always privy to why God places certain people in power, why he would give a wicked man such authority. But I do think we see a pattern in Scripture. We see a pattern that the moral condition of a people often affects the moral condition of the king God places over them. Think about the people of Israel. When they decided that they wanted a king, their motivation was that they wanted to be like the nations around them, the pagan nations who worshipped idols. They said, give us a king so we can be like them. And so God gave them Saul. Because Saul would be a wicked king, a king like the nations around them, the ones they were trying to imitate. So we can't say this is always the case, but we see that the moral condition of the people can and, and does at times affect the kind of king that God gives them. But regardless, whether a king is a good or bad king, his position is ultimately the work of God. It is given to that man to steward. <clears throat> After the king explains his, his dream to Daniel, he again asks Daniel another time for the interpretation because he knows Daniel is the only one who can offer this wisdom he is looking for. Let's continue reading verses 19 
through 27. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and, reach, and reaches to heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. <clears throat> When Daniel hears this dream, he is immediately disturbed. He's distressed, it says, for a short time. He was terrified at what he had just heard. It appears that Daniel took a little bit of time to consider the dream, and then the meaning of the dream left him afraid for the fate of the king. And it's interesting here because Daniel shows a genuine concern for the king. And he wishes this dream was not actually for the king, but for the king's enemies, I think that Daniel and the king, I think that they grew to respect one another. And this is decades after serving the king. And I think that they are a little bit fond of each other in a way. But think about what this king had done to Daniel. He ripped Daniel away from his family, from his friends, everything he had ever known. He threatened to throw his friends in a fire. This king conquered Daniel's people. In general, this king was, was kind to the people of Judah. He allowed them to live in Babylon, but this king is the enemy of God's people. By human standards, Daniel had every right to gloat and to celebrate, to tell the king, hey, man, you are finally gonna get it. God has let you play this game for a long time, but now you are gonna get what's coming to you, and you deserve every bit of it. But Daniel doesn't delight in the fact that the king is going to fall under judgment. On the contrary, he's concerned for the well-being of Nebuchadnezzar. He takes no pleasure in relaying the interpretation to the king, no joy in the judgment that will befall him. Do we desire the repentance of our enemies more than we desire their judgment? And I think that's what Daniel models for us. He would rather the king humble himself and repent than fall under the judgment of God. 
I saw a video last week of, of a megachurch pastor, and he was, he was celebrating and, and cheering for the coming of Jesus, but the way he was doing it was really unsettling for me. Obviously, the coming of Jesus is something we should long for and desire, and that is a great thing. But they were very casually celebrating and laughing about the fact that people will fall under the judgment of God when Christ returns. He, he was celebrating Christ's return, not because he longed for Jesus to come and set things right, but because he was delighting in the destruction of the wicked. And it sounded good, I'm sure. It got his congregation all hyped up, and they were all cheering and clapping, and it was great. But that is not the heart of God. Consider with me Ezekiel 33, verse 11. It'll be on the screen. You probably won't have time to turn there with me. But I do want to read this. And, and in this, this verse, uh, God has commanded Ezekiel to go to the people of Israel and say this to them. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not delight in judging the wicked. He will judge the wicked because he is just. But God's desire is that the wicked would humble themselves before him and repent. We see the same thing in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, where it says that God desires that none should perish, but that they would come to repentance and the knowledge of him. Now, don't misunderstand. It, it, it's a good thing that God is just and that he will judge the wicked. It would be wrong for God to not, or it would be wrong for God to allow wickedness to go on unaddressed. But at the same time, God does not delight in pouring out wrath. God would rather those wicked people repent and humble themselves and embrace the forgiveness that he offers. And that should be the desire of our heart. Even those who have wronged us, who have stabbed us in the back, who have betrayed us and made us feel hurt and, and, and worthless. Our desire should not be their destruction, but their repentance. Even those leaders who we will never agree with and we think they're crazy, we think you think they might be a monster, do you desire their judgment or their repentance? Because we can be grateful for God's justice, but at the same time, desire the repentance of the unjust. And if we aren't careful, it's easy for us to adopt this, this kind of pride where we look on others as if they are less deserving of God's mercy and grace than we are. When the reality is that none of us are worthy or deserving of God's grace, Period. Even if somebody's sinfulness far, out, far exceeds your own, the moment you begin to think that you are more deserving of God's grace and mercy, you have embraced the pride that God hates and despises. <clears throat> After some reassurances, Daniel does as he's told, and he proceeds to share the interpretation with the king. And he explains that the tree, it represents... King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king is known by everybody across the earth. His expansive kingdom, it provides for people, it sustains the life within it. And this king has been wildly successful. He has been prosperous. His subjects have benefited greatly because he has run his kingdom well. He might not have been a righteous man, but he was an effective ruler and king. 
And his greatness has continued to rise and rise as high as the sky, and his reach has expanded to the ends of the earth. And then Daniel repeats the, the decree of the angel. And essentially what, what Daniel's telling him here is, is God is going to show you who is sovereign. God is sovereign even over your mental capacity and mental faculties, O king. That God is going to cause you to believe you are a wild animal to be wet with the dew of the earth. That indicates the king's gonna be exposed to the effects of the weather. And seven periods of time most likely refers to seven years. Seven changings of the seasons. And that's Babylon, that's modern day Iraq. The summers there can get as hot as 120 degrees and winter nights drop well below freezing. This king is gonna endure those extremes as an animal for seven years. And the end of verse 25 and then verse 26 provide the reason why this fate will befall the king. It's his own pride. He, he believes he is in control. He believes he's the one who's sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth. He's seen the wisdom of God. He's seen the power of God demonstrated clearly, but he still believes that the earth is his domain to do with as he pleases. And we know that the king's pride is the catalyst for this judgment here because it says this judgment continues until the moment that the king acknowledges that it is the most high who rules the kingdoms of man. Nebuchadnezzar thinks his authority and power are unmatched, but God says, no, 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 no. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm gonna show you who is truly in charge. I will take everything from you, even your own sanity. But when you're ready to acknowledge me, then I will give you your mind back. Then I will restore you what I have taken. The stump's roots were left and protected, protected by a band of iron and bronze. It's offering the hope that the king will be restored if he would just humble himself before the Lord. And that's what Daniel says at the end of verse 26. Once you learn your place, the kingdom will be confirmed for you. In other words, king, if you would just humble yourself, you will be restored as king. God is offering the king the chance to humble himself and repent. For decades, this king has known the God of Israel, seen what he could do, seen who he is, seen the depths of his wisdom, the extent of his power, but still the king exalts only himself. He will not humble himself before God. He will not obey his commands and he will not worship him alone. King Nebuchadnezzar was, was God's chosen instrument of judgment on the people of Judah. This king is the enemy of God's people. He tried to cook some of them in a furnace. And further than that, he's just a pagan king. He indulges in whatever he desires. He's an angry man. He's a violent man. He rejects God's ways, yet God offers him this chance at redemption. Acknowledge who God is, that he is the sole sovereign over heaven and earth. And this judgment wouldn't even be needed. And that's why Daniel is so urgent in his counsel to the king. He's pleading with the king, please just listen to me, Nebuchadnezzar. Repent of your sins. Stop practicing these sinful things and practice righteousness. Turn from your wickedness. Turn from your iniquity. Show mercy to the oppressed. Do what God has asked of you because he may be gracious and perhaps stay this judgment from you. God is faithful to forgive to show mercy to anyone, no matter what they have done in the past. 
But those who refuse to humble themselves, they will never taste that forgiveness and mercy. Number two, God desires and requires humble repentance. God desires and requires humble repentance. You guys didn't know I was a poet, did you? <clears throat> that was an accident. I didn't mean to rhyme it. It just happened that way. As much as you may like to think that you are in control of things, you are not. God is in charge. God sets the standard for what is right. And when we recognize who he is and what he has done for us, humble repentance is the only appropriate response. Through Jesus Christ, God has paid the penalty for our sin. On the basis of his sacrifice, we can be forgiven. If you have never humbled yourself and acknowledged your sinful state before God, I urge you to do that. Humble yourself, repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus. And for those of you that already follow Jesus, don't presume that your faith spares you from God's judgment on the sin you, you refuse to repent of. If you're a true believer, your sin will not forfeit your salvation, but God does discipline those whom he loves. And when those of us who are following Jesus ignore the commands of God, when we pridefully, pridefully persist in our own sin, we shouldn't be surprised when we face consequences for that sin. Humility before God is not a one-time act. It's not something that we just show when we pray a prayer when we're, when we're young or at any other stage in our life. It's an ongoing disposition of our heart toward God that recognizes his position as the sole sovereign king of heaven and earth and our position as being his subject underneath his authority and rule. It is not our job to determine the best course of action. God determined that. He has told us what the best course of action is for us. He has determined what is right and wrong. It is the king of heaven, the most high God that has that authority. God desires humble repentance from all people, and he requires ongoing humility from his followers. Let's read the rest of the passage together. Verses 28 through 20 or through 37. <clears throat> All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. All of these things that Daniel explained do in fact come upon the king. He did not heed Daniel's counsel. He did not take the warning God gave him through this dream. Even this dream was not enough to humble the king before the Lord. But look at the time frame included here. God sent this dream and then gave him 12 months, but still the king refused. This man is utterly unwilling to humble himself, no matter how long God gives him. So God has to do it for him. Like the tree in the vision, God cut this man down to almost nothing. It says that the king was out walking on his palace, the roof of his palace, looking around at the glorious city that he had built. And it was a glorious city. I mean, it was the seven wonders of the world, uh, the, the hanging, hanging gardens of Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this was a glorious, beautiful city. It was a testament to all that he had done and accomplished. And whether he's talking to himself or to another person, we, we don't know. But he says that this is the empire that I have built by my own power as a testament to my own glory and majesty. But before he could even get that sentence out, he heard another voice from heaven. And it told him, that the kingdom had departed from him. He refused to acknowledge that, that, that it was God who gave him this kingdom in the first place, that it was God who enabled him to prosper in the way that he did. So God ripped that kingdom back from him. And then the voice repeated the exact same decree from the dream that he had one, early, or he had one year earlier. And as soon as that voice was finished speaking, the king lost his mind. Dude goes crazy, and he was driven from dwelling with people into the wild, and he lived as a wild animal for seven years. Now, some scholars have found it uh, very unbelievable that a man would eat grass and live like an animal, and so they have concluded this is not a literal description of what happened, and they would say that this is either a fabricated account or this is just some creative way of describing the king being deposed and and being removed from his influence in the royal court. Some of you may also find it hard to believe that a man could could do these things, but I don't think it's really that unbelievable. There used to be a show, I don't remember what what, what channel it was on, but it was called My Strange Addiction. You guys ever seen that? I don't know, maybe it's still on there. I, we have streaming, streaming service, I don't have cable, so maybe it's still around, but I don't know. But in this show, they would document people with really weird habits, really unhealthy habits. And a lot of times, it was uh, the things that they ate. And on this show, they featured people who ate dirt, people who ate glass. Uh, there was a person, a, a lady who ate couch cushions. That's just what she did. She would pull the, the foam out of the couch cushion and she would eat it. That was her midday snack, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of weird people that eat a lot of weird things. On top of that, there are documented cases of mental illness in which a person truly believes himself to be an animal 
and attempts to act like that animal. And this includes documented cases of people believing themselves to be a cow and going outside and eating grass like a cow. This is certainly not unbelievable. This has happened many times throughout human history. And when you add to the fact that this condition was brought about by God himself, it's even more believable. So to say that this didn't happen, it's an attack on the integrity of God's word. And to say that this was nothing more than than a timeout for the king, I think that fails to do justice to the imagery that we're seeing here. This tree was, was stripped bare. It was cut down to nothing. There's no reason to see this as anything other than a true account. So the king spent seven years and eventually his, his hair and his nails, even they grew so long that he began to look like an animal. But after that seven years, the king's senses return and he immediately begins to praise God. He praises God's everlasting rule, his mighty works, just like he did in the first three verses. He's a little bit more specific this time though. But in verse 29, who is the king praising? He's praising himself looking at his kingdom, saying, how, how great am I? Look at what I have built and what I have done. But now he says, those works of man, they are nothing compared to the work and power of God. Alexander the Great, who uh, Daniel will actually prophesy about in the coming chapters, is one of the most accomplished leaders in history, one of the most influential people to ever live. Where is he now? dead. He came, he conquered, he lived, and then he died like everybody else. How do his accomplishments compare to the work of God, who is infinite in power, whose kingdom is everlasting? They don't. That's, that's what the king is recognizing here. And he says that God does according to all his will among the host of heaven and the people of earth. He's saying, he is too great. No one can stay his hand. Nobody can question his work. God is sovereign. Nothing in existence can stop him from accomplishing his goals and his purposes. And further than that, we have no right to question those goals and purposes because who are we to look at this God who is perfect in wisdom and say that we know better? Is that not the peak of human pride and arrogance? Through his humiliation... The king has come to realize who truly deserves glory. Only God deserves the glory. It is God's accomplishments that will last. It is God alone who enables our, our accomplishments. And when we take glory for ourselves, all we're really doing is just robbing God of the glory he deserves. But God will not share his glory and those who seek to take it for themselves will be humbled. The king thought himself greater than every person who had ever lived, anybody who was alive at the time. And so to humble him, God brought him to a subhuman level. He said, you think you're great among men? Well, let me show you how great you really are. And he brought him lower than any other man. And when did the king's senses return to him? I don't know if it's still up there. Look back at verse 34 if it is. He says, when I lifted my eyes to heaven. The king lifting his eyes to heaven, this is not just him like kind of like looking up one day and be like, oh yeah, now I know who God is. This is an act of submission, of humility, of acknowledging 
that God truly is sovereign. And this is the point where he realizes who is truly in charge and who's truly calling the shots. I believe this is the point of conversion for the king. He finally grasped who God is and immediately he begins to praise him. He doesn't get angry because God made him act like an animal. He immediately understands his place in relation to God. In the king's humiliation, we see that God both humbles the proud and he also exalts the humble. So number three, God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. What does Proverbs 16 tell us? The pride comes before the what? The fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. The king spent almost his entire reign building a kingdom for his own vanity, his own pride, rather than stewarding that position for the glory of God. He used it for himself. He ascended to the peaks of human pride and his fall was catastrophic, utterly humiliating. In his effort to take the place of God as true sovereign, all he did was bring ruin upon himself. But God is gracious. And from the time that this man lifted his eyes to heaven, he was restored. Once he humbled himself, God exalted him. As we study this passage, we would do well to ask ourselves, whose kingdom am I building? The king faced utter humiliation because he used his power and strength for his own glory, to magnify his own name. And now you and I may not have an expansive kingdom, but we love, we love to build little kingdoms for ourselves. Just as this king built a, a kingdom as a testament to his greatness, we love to use our life, our accomplishments, anything that we do to establish our own glory as well. We do it with work. It's a good thing to work hard. It's a blessing when you advance through the ranks and you get that promotion, but what's motivating your pursuit in that career? Are you after the glory and the prestige that comes with it? Are you chasing recognition? Or are you working hard to steward the abilities God gave you for his glory? Are you working so that everyone else sees and celebrates you? Or do you work hard so that others will see God in you? Is your desire that you would decrease so that Christ might increase? And we do this in a lot of ways, even at church. Are you, are you serving at church for the, the attaboys and the pats on the back? Or is it out of love for Christ and his body? Are you parenting to raise your kids in a way that they will love and know Jesus? Or are you just raising them in the way that you should because you want all the other parents to think that you're the best parent around? Brothers and sisters, your life is not chiefly about you. Your life your talents, your abilities, all of it is a gift from a good and gracious God. But it was given for us to steward, not for our own glory, but for his. So whose glory are you after? Are you building your own little kingdom to make yourself feel important? Or are you pointing everybody else to Christ and his kingdom? And most of us probably know the answer to that without really needing to think about it. We know whether we're pursuing our own glory or God's glory. 
If right now you are building your own kingdom, wrongly taking for yourself the glory that rightly belongs to God, lift your eyes to heaven. And what I mean by that is take your focus off of you, off your immediate circumstances, and put it on to God. Behold who he is, all that he has done. Meditate on his goodness, his holiness, his power, his wisdom, everything he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then ask yourself, who really deserves the glory? Us or God? We have two options. We can humble ourselves before God or God will humble us. That's the takeaway from chapter four. That's the big idea. Humble yourself or God will humble you. Those of you who spend your time building your own little kingdom, spending your time pursuing the vain applause and approval of everybody else, if you live in a way that draws everyone's attention to you and your accomplishments, don't be surprised when your kingdom, when your accomplishments crumble and collapse beneath you. Just as the king shared in the final verse, the Lord is just, all his ways are righteous, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The Lord can and does humble the proud. How often do we see a megachurch pastor, a nationwide ministry leader's fall? They, they build this church or this ministry entirely around their personality. It's all about them and getting their brand out there. And meanwhile, they choose not to walk in obedience because ministry really isn't about God. It's about their own glory. But eventually, there's a crack in the foundation of that kingdom. Their sin comes to light. And that little kingdom is torn away from them immediately. If God can rip the kingdom away from someone so powerful as Nebuchadnezzar, if he can humble those leading the largest churches, the largest organizations, trust me, he will have no problem humbling you. Don't think because you're not a king or you're not a celebrity pastor that your pride goes unnoticed. It doesn't. And you will be humbled as well. If not in this life, certainly after it. Even Christians will give an account for every word they speak, every attitude of their heart, every decision you make, you will give an account for. God humbling the prideful in this life is, is likely, it's a likely possibility, but God humbling the prideful after this life is an absolute certainty. And as the only true sovereign over heaven and earth, God demands humble repentance from his subjects. So the question for us is not, will we be humbled? The questions are, when will we be humbled? And who is going to do the humbling? Will we humble ourselves before God, or will we wait until he comes and humbles us? Because you will be humbled. Every single knee will bow before Jesus. Every single tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. We can humble ourselves now by repenting, putting our faith in Jesus, following him, embracing his gift of salvation, or we can wait we can be humbled by him in judgment. The kingdoms we build, the things we accomplish in this life, they are minuscule, nothing compared to the kingdom of God. 
to compare to all that he has done and accomplished for his glory and for the benefit of his own people. Do not let your life draw the attention of others to your greatness. Live your life in such a way that it directs the gaze of others to the true king of heaven and earth and his glory. We can choose to humble ourselves now or we can choose to be humbled and humiliated in judgment like the king. Humble yourself before God or you will be humbled by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the sole sovereign over heaven and earth. We could never list out the great works and the great things that you have accomplished. And Lord, you have done so many of those things on our behalf. You have made a way for us to be forgiven, to be brought back into relationship with you, to be adopted as your children. Lord, you truly deserve all of the glory. And Lord, we confess our pride to you. We confess that so often we try to take the glory that rightly belongs to you. Lord, help us to lift our gaze to heaven, to humble ourselves before you. Help every one of us to live in such a way that we don't draw the attention of others, but that we point others to you. This week as we go, Lord, help us not to build our own kingdoms, but to work to build yours, to give you all of the glory in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.